Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today I'm excited to welcome Asit Sharma back on the show to take a look at another recent IPO. This time we're taking a look at ZipRecruiter. Asit, how's it going? Pretty good, Nick. Thanks for asking me on today. Excited to talk about ZipRecruiter as someone who's had a little bit of experience on both sides of the fence, you know, applying for jobs and, and also hiring people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you look at the current macro environment, the jobs market right now, employers all really rushing to try to hire folks, having a little bit of of trouble there. And this ZipRecruiter probably plugs in about as perfectly to what we're seeing in in the kind of jobs environment uh, than any other company you might see. So it came public via a direct listing back in May, says something about their their capital needs coming public via direct listing rather than um, IPO. But, But just high level asset for folks who aren't familiar with ZipRecruiter, maybe haven't heard a thousand podcast ad for ZipRecruiter like I have. Uh, what does this company do? What, what's uh, what's what's the, the story here? Sure. So ZipRecruiter is basically a platform that connects people who are seeking jobs and people who are hiring. Their mission is to actively connect people to their next great opportunity, which I sort of like. I think I've been primed by our friends, Brian Stoffel and Brian Feroldi, to look for succinct um, an evocative mission statement. So I like that. I mean, it doesn't tell you exactly what they do, but it is uh, inspirational and uh, actionable, I think. And the thing with ZipRecruiter that's different uh, from other job sites is that it's sort of a matchmaker for curating job opportunities for, for job seekers and candidates for employers. The curation element here is really important. The company uses artificial intelligence to feed deep learning algorithms to try to get a grasp of what employers and job seekers are looking for. So you tell ZipRecruiter from the hiring side what you're interested in. And as an employee, of course, they are combing through your data and trying to make sure that their artificial intelligence maybe can form connections that might not be as obvious to you. And I think this has some utility if you don't have a lot of skill in hiring, or or maybe you are overwhelmed in your department. They're trying to cut that work down for you, but also through this idea of curation, make potentially a better match than uh, humans could do. Or I should put it this way, to have a better pool of applicants and then let the humans make uh, the decisions. So this AI layer learns employers' preferences and um, I wanted to say, as somebody who myself has spent a number of years in the private sector, uh, after some years in public accounting, uh, both advising people to hire people, and then when I was working in industry hiring people myself, I really like this part of ZipRecruiter's technology. They call it personalized recruiter assistance. Um, and it's an aha moment if you are an employer. I'm just going to read from their prospectus. After a new job is posted, ZipRecruiter's matching technology immediately presents potential great match job seekers to the employer for consideration. Employers can then directly invite the job seekers they like best to apply. So for anyone out there who's sifted through hundreds and hundreds of resumes uh, as a first exercise in trying to hire someone will appreciate the fact that after taking the data, ZipRecruiter will almost instantly start showing you candidates that you can then rank and maybe call for an interview. 
Yeah, I think that the AI uh, aspect, I think, is, is a big differentiator here. One of the things that the management uh, talks about is that often employers aren't even uh, the best at, at writing a job description in a way that, that potential hires uh, know what they're looking for. So the AI even helps figure out, all right, these are the types of candidates that, that are attractive to this employer and helps bubble them up through the system. Also, automatically, uh, you know, from the employee side, will automatically send, you know, jobs that get posted that are relevant to those employees and say, hey, you should probably go apply for this. Why don't you, why don't you press the one click apply and send your, your uh, resume in? So from the perspective of employers, really helps with the, the sortation of, uh, of, employee, of, of potential hires. And they really are improving this on a, on a regular basis. They have uh, uh, hiring managers rate uh, applicants. So, you know, rate them as a best candidate, upvote them. And they use that data to then inform their algorithm and continue to improve over time. And you see uh, the improvement they've had. So they, they put in their, um, in their S1 going back to Q4 2016, it would take 39 days on average uh, to hire uh, from, from after a job got posted on ZipRecruiter to when, uh, when a person was hired. Now, as of Q4 2020, down to 16 days. So really massively in- increasing the speed at which folks can hire, which, you know, as a company that wants to run their business and not be constantly interviewing people, you can certainly see uh, see the attraction there in, in filling those those jobs and also just attracting great candidates um, with less stress. So I think that's, that's a big differentiator uh, uh, for the company. The other thing is um, you post your job on ZipRecruiter and it automatically goes out to essentially every job site uh, across the across the board. So job posted on ZipRecruiter distributed well over a thousand sites managed by their job distribution partners. So, so from the perspective of an employer, not only do you have this one click press that, that sends out your, your application all over the place, but also starts bubbling up uh, uh, these potential applicants to you in a way that uh, saves you a lot of time filtering through uh, hunting and pecking through candidates. Yes. I mean, this essentially is a platform business. I'm really fond of them, whether they're in e-commerce or maybe in payments. So think PayPal, think an Etsy on uh, the e-commerce side. This has 2.8 million employers on the hiring side and um, 110 million plus employee customers or potential employee customers. This is a pretty large platform. It's got wide breadth, um, as you mentioned. And I think that the uh, the pricing also is pretty fair. I looked on their sites uh, earlier before our show. They've got very um, reasonable monthly payment tiers. I think they start at $250 a month. And they also have a flat rate pricing plan. So you can use uh, their services with, with plans that range from a day to a year on a flat rate basis. And it's also a performance space. 20% of the equation is performance space, sort of pay per click. And that sort of is reflected in the company's revenue composition. They get um, roughly, if if we look at the most recent three months the company's reported on in its first quarter as a public company, out of $183 million uh, in revenue, they had about $152 million that was subscription based and then $32. Two million that was performance based. So you can see that uh, percentage playing out. Yeah, just one maybe maybe context. You mentioned that, so they've served two point eight million employers over time, but folks do come uh, come on and off uh, the platform as they have hiring needs. Maybe we'll talk about talk about that um, later as we get into. Um most recent quarter. I think one thing that, that stands out anytime we, we look at these, these new IPOs, we like founder-led companies. And, and I think uh, ZipRecruiter, it, it falls in that uh, category. When you look at the, the ownership uh, a stake and, and just the, the continued involvement from the founder, what are your thoughts there? I like the fact that uh, one of the co-founders, uh, who is this, he's the president, also the CEO and the chairman, so you see some control there, is Ian Siegel. 
Uh, he owned roughly 13.5% of the stock before the IPO. Now, post, and I should say direct listing, post direct listing, he owns 12% of the stock. And most of that is through a family trust. And he's got another $4 million uh, in, in stock that he owns personally. Now, there are some other co founders who've left the company. They still have skin in the game, even though they are not managing the company. I guess there's this existential skin in the game. They're sort of rooting for the stock, but don't have a lot of influence on it. These include Joe Edmonds, who was the former secretary and treasurer. He's got 9% of the, the shares outstanding. Ward Polos, the former chief design officer, has 7% of the stock. And Will Red, who's the former chief technology officer, owns 6% of the stock. Now, I want to pause here, uh, Nick. I know we're going to come back to this when we talk about risks, but you and I were chatting about this before the show. This isn't the typical look for a business that's been closely held, uh, has multiple founders and key employees that have come up owning stock through the the uh, private portion of the, the company's existence through to a an IPO or a direct listing. You've got three people who had very important positions here who've sort of left the company with appreciable shares of stock. What do you make of that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's strange to see this. I think sometimes you see this when companies come public, uh, folks that are more kind of startup orientated uh, uh, managers that more like to, to build companies up. Maybe, that's probably the most innocent explanation um, for why folks are leaving. I will say it's, it is a little disconcerting. Uh, obviously, you like to see the founder still in place, uh, the CEO, president uh, with Ian Siegel, right? And I, I have lots of confidence in him. Confidence in him. But uh, it does leave some question marks for me of why are these why have these folks left? I, you know, I tried to search around to see some context there. D- didn't really see much. So, um, and also creates. Uh, you know, we talk about sometimes when there's when there's large uh, venture capital ownership in a stock when it comes public, or when there's large private equity ownership that there's there's an overhang here that that this, these are shares that potentially uh, could be sold into the market and, and you know create some downward pressure on the stock. I think when you look at these folks leaving as this company comes public, it, it raises. You know, a little bit of, of my antennas of maybe we see some of that uh, with some of these founders in the company. Now, I, you, on the other side, though, you see sometimes you see founders will stick around for forever, right, and still continue to hold stock. I think Paul Allen with Microsoft, uh, you know, may, may have held a, a number of shares for, for a long, long time when he hadn't been involved. Uh, uh, so it, it's one of those kind of, I don't, I don't know if I would say red flag, it's more of like a yellow flag. I would like to investigate this more and, and get more context. Sure. I would follow Ian Siegel's uh, holdings as time goes on. Maybe check on that every year, read the proxy statement, or if you like to look at things a little more closely, you can read the SEC filings each year that reflect his uh, buys and sells. And we should say here, though, that uh, current executives, Jeffrey Swelling, who's the chief operating officer, and David Travers, who, this, who is the CFO, they've actually got an appreciable amount of stock for people who were brought on uh, sort of in the second round. Uh, Zwelling, the CEO, owns 1.3% of outstanding shares. And David Travers, the CFO, owns roughly one percentage point of the stock, which is a lot for a company to give uh, to new, newer executives. And so I think that maybe is something you can hang your hat on if you're looking at skin in the game for current management. You've got that 12-odd percent that Ian Siegel has. Add these other two executives, uh, you're up to over 14%. Now, they don't have a controlling interest, but uh, I think that's something that balances a little bit the maybe curious exit of some of the founding members who have still appreciable share in the company. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, no doubt that the folks running the company ha have uh, a skin in the game, right? Uh, you know, when you've got the the CEO owning over three hundred million worth of stock, and even lower level uh, executives owning you know ten plus million, uh, certainly th they want the stock to go up just like me and you uh, do as potential um, investors. So so that creates um, some alignment. So one of the things you always want to talk about with the, these new IPOs is all right, what's the opportunity in front of this company? Obviously, people always have a need to hire, but um, you know, uh, the market is only is only so big. So, what did you make of the the TAM numbers that um, the ZipRecruiter put out for us? Sure. Well, they showed in their prospectus a market that's two hundred five billion dollars in size when you take employment and recruiting agencies, add in the staffing and the temporary market. Online recruitment sites like ZipRecruiter, like uh, LinkedIn, uh, and many other smaller competitors, they've got about thirteen billion. Uh, share in this market. So there is a long path to growth if you take the proposition that eventually these online curated sites can put the other agencies out of business. Uh, the, I'll get back to this in a second, but but we should also mention that the company has a nice graph in their perspective that shows how fast that online recruiting share is growing. It's growing at a compounded annual growth rate of 14%. That's over about a 10-year period. So it's a sustainable and uh, I think really fast-growing market. I love a fast-growing market because my saying is if you can grow at least as fast as the market, you've got pretty decent growth yourself built in. If the market's growing at 14% and you just grow with it, you've got a built-in 14% annual revenue, uh, compound annual growth rate going on. So that's nice. But going back to this total market opportunity, I think that the executive firms are fairly entrenched in the market, as are the recruiting agencies. And I think it becomes a little harder when you look at the staffing and temp side of the market to take share away for, from those companies, because those are companies that have relationships with businesses, ongoing relationships where they are sending staff over um, on a very um, cost-effective basis. For executive recruitment, it's a cutthroat business, and many of those firms have been around for decades and have relationships with big multinational corporations. So that total market opportunity, at least in the near term, I think is overstated. But if you're looking at an online recruitment share of $13 billion that could double or triple in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it shows that there's still a lot of revenue and market share here for a company like ZipRecruiter to grab if it can continue to grow. And we should mention here, they've got a very nice growth strategy. It reminds me of the way PayPal approaches its business as a, a payments platform, but a similar platform business. They have three key performance indicators or KPIs, Nick, that you had brought up to me. They want to increase the number of employers on their marketplace. So they measure that as a key performance indicator. Is that growing every quarter? Increased job seekers. So that's the other side of the platform. Are they growing that base? And they want to improve their algorithm. How effective is their artificial intelligence at finding the right candidate for the job, presenting it to the employer? They're focused on three very important big picture items and investing behind that. So you like to see that focus from the top down. I think that says something nice about management. Yeah, it's a classic uh, uh, two-sided marketplace. I tend to agree with you on on the 
skepticism um, around the TAM. Although I, I do think we see broadly across the board, whether it's in hiring or, or real estate or anywhere, really, we're seeing this shift from what had traditionally been offline, you know, meeting your needs offline, whether it's demand for, uh, for hiring, moving towards doing that online. I think this, this, is, this is a huge shift we're seeing across all industries, and I don't think hiring is any different, although that the pace at which that shift happens, you know, it's a question. What, one other maybe piece of context to give here is so that $205 billion uh, number for the TAM, that's just the U.S. market. So it's worth noting, so currently ZipRecruiter only operates in, USA, in the USA, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So there is an opportunity to move outside of the U.S., in, in, uh, outside of North America and the U.K., into maybe other European markets or, or across the globe. So that is a, as a potential uh, opportunity to expand the addressable market. But as of today, we're looking at this uh, you know, $205 billion U.S. employment uh, recruiting agencies and staffing market, with of which $13 billion of that is online um, and growing. Uh, but yeah, you look at the, the business strategy, really want to, want to grow both sides of that marketplace and then use that to feed data into their algorithms and then improve the performance um, of the marketplace. So, I mean, now I guess is a good time to talk about how they've been performing as far as financials and bringing new, uh, new employers onto the platform. As you look through uh, uh, their financials, Asset, what we've seen so far from the company, what stands out to you? So I think uh, for me, what stands out to me is uh, sort of the resilience in the model. Last year, they had $418 million of revenue, but that was about a 3% decline from the year before. Of course, that has a lot to do and everything to do with COVID, which really impacted hiring across the board earlier in the year. Um, I, I like that, that they were able to rebound. I'll talk about that first quarter in just a second. Uh, where we, we get the indication that the company is hitting its former growth rates. Before uh, that year, they grew at an 18% uh, top-line clip from 2019 to 2020. I like their gross margins. Uh, the gross margin, 87% last year, 88% in this most recently reported quarter. Um, this is a pretty nice gross margin, very reminiscent of software companies that are really, really capital light. Of course, that's just sort of the top line, um, but gross profit and gross profitability pays the bills. If you have a high gross profit margin, over time, if you get your costs in line, your overhead costs, you can start to see operating leverage. So I like that a lot. In the first quarter of this year, they had record revenue. That is, I should say, their most recently reported quarter, their first quarter as a public company. Um, this was revenue of $183 million represents a 109% year-over-year growth rate, um, which is sort of understandable because they had um, an easy comparison to the prior year, which was impacted by COVID. But it's also a 46% growth rate over the first quarter of 2021. Um, this quarter, they had an 88% gross margin, a little bit of improvement there, as I mentioned. And it's notable to me that R&D expense is increasing. It more than doubled this most recent quarter from 16 million bucks this time last year to 37 million dollars. Um, this says to me uh, something positive about the platform. They did not raise money from this direct listing. I, I want to make sure everyone understands uh, this was not uh, an, an IPO and, and uh, not a listing in which money came into the company's coffers. So essentially, they are utilizing 
resources that were previously existing on the balance sheet and some of their cash flow to invest more heavily in R&D. So that stands out to me. Um, the other thing that stands out to me is that they are starting to invest more in sales and marketing to drive the top line. We don't know quite what to make of that yet, Nick, because they're such a recent company as far as public information is concerned. We just have two years of data. But that's something that I would watch now that they have become public, they've got access to the capital markets if they want to to raise some capital in the future. Um, yes, we, we look at them as, as a company that's very interesting, but it's going to take several quarters to understand the relationship of their sales and marketing uh, spend to their revenue. Yeah, they, they talk about how they're kind of scientists with sales and marketing and that they've seen huge tailwinds this year, as you would expect in the uh, in the overall market that's led them to press harder um, harder on the marketing side than they had coming into uh, coming into 2021. Now, part of that is they turned off sales and marketing in a really huge way in 2020 because nobody was hiring and there was lots of uncertainty in the job market. But you've seen that snap back in a really big way. You mentioned the 46% growth quarter over quarter uh, in revenue. Obviously, uh, that, that's a big tailwind of more uh, employers coming on the platform. They had 170,000 paid employers in the, in the quarter, which is a record high, 120% Increase year over year. One thing. So you mentioned the R and D expense. There's also there's also a big a big jump up um, in sales and marketing expense, as you would expect, right? The two KPIs for the company are or the top two are we want to increase employers on the platform, we want to increase employees on the platform. One of the big ways to do that is to advertise, so more people are are aware of you and and, and come on the platform. Uh, but one thing that was kind of uh, maybe. Makes it a little bit tougher to to suss through what's going on with these earnings is that we've had this huge uh, stock based compensation expense come in uh, with the uh, the direct listing as you mentioned uh, uh, back in May. So they uh, the company uh, leading up to the direct listing had changed uh, the vesting schedule uh, for employee restricted stock units such that once the company uh, came public first day of trading all that stock uh, vested right which obviously from the perspective of the employees right you want to be able to to sell as you have this liquidity event coming into the market. But the way that complicates things is the way the company accounts for uh, sales and marketing expense, research and development expense, even like sales general and administrative expense, all includes uh, the stock-based compensation that goes to employees that work in those various departments within the company. So uh, you, know, you see a, an increase in sales and marketing. The company is certainly pressing there. Uh, but part of the increase is, is coming from this, this big, lumpy uh, stock-based comp expense that we got uh, uh, this year. With, with the IPO. And so it's kind of hard to see how much of that is, is what's going on in the core business and how much of that is this lumpiness uh, we're getting from the SBC expense. I will say for, from, from my perspective, I'm, I, I like that they're, they're pressing on marketing on the most recent earnings call. Uh, you know, the CEO said, listen, we're investing in aggressively into what is probably the strongest tailwind we've seen in the 11-year history of the company. With the demand for hiring right now, with folks probably coming back into the job market as, as you know, uh, various government protections are, are lifted, there's lots of demand uh, for these services. So if there's, any, uh, if there's ever any a time where you're likely to get a, a high return on investment on your marketing spend, I think now would be the time. Absolutely. And I also like that they have a significant stock-based compensation expense uh, he, one of the reasons that you want to go public is to provide a more liquid market for the shares of your company if you're using a lot of stock-based compensation. Uh, so this is a benefit to employees, especially the ones they're trying to recruit. We were chatting before the show, Nick, that a lot of this stock-based compensation is going into areas like R&D. So they're obviously using it to incentivize uh, some of the data scientists and AI specialists that they're hiring. But it makes it a little murky 
uh, now to know exactly what is sort of tied to this direct listing, what that cadence will look for uh, going forward. So if you're an investor, a prospective investor in ZipRecruiter, you want to break both things down. You want to trace sales and marketing and R&D expense and general administrative expense, the three big buckets of their overhead in their, their line items on their income statement. You want to trace those from quarter to quarter, you make your over-year comparisons, and then you want to read the notes and to see going forward how much is related to stock-based uh, compensation. You can also look at the cash flow statement and look at the relationship of uh, SBC to operating cash flows, get some nuance there. Uh, but this is something that we're not going to be able to really learn until the next few quarters have elapsed and we see what the ongoing cadence is. How much of that now are they going to keep refilling now that the, the company shares are public and that's a nice tool to attract and retain talent. So it was a great point that you bring up. Just makes it a little murkier here, but I will say at the end of the day, the point you made just a few minutes before is absolutely correct, Nick, that you're going to expect to see this overhead expense in general ramp up because the company is in growth phase now. It's trying to grab market share. They're going to be spending more on R&D. They're going to be spending more on sales and marketing. At some point, the end result of that should be some operating leverage, which we've got just maybe a minute or two. We should probably talk about that as well. Yeah, Asad, well, yeah, what, what can you tell us about the operating leverage you're looking for in this company? Certainly, you want to see some ROI on this marketing expense, the brand take off, and really acquire customers. Sure. So, um, let's take the company's own uh, numbers. They are targeting an adjusted EBITDA margin, so earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization of 30%. Um, so, this is after all adjustments to uh, the income statement and some other adjustments for unusual or non-recurring items. That's a pretty healthy target. Now, that's a long-term target. They're at around 16% as of 2020. To me, again, this depends on a couple of things. How much of the spends that I was just mentioning yield in new sales? And also, how successful will the company be breaking into the markets that we talked about earlier, breaking into that executive search market, the staffing market, maybe the temp market, moving up the food chain in, in some aspects and taking business away from executive recruiters, forming long-term relationships with bigger enterprise customers and multinational companies. That provides you with sort of more stable annualized recurring revenue. It also gives you more operating leverage. And over time, maybe they can hit those margins. That would be a healthy EBITDA margin if they can pull it off. And I think it, you know, it makes this company sort of interesting. I want to follow this, Nick, going forward. I like the fact that it's founder-led. Um, last thoughts to you uh, in terms of what you think about this after we've spent some some hours in research and and a few minutes here talking about it this morning. Yeah, for me, I like the founder-led nature of the business. I like their differentiation from the other folks in the market. Uh, I, I do think, and you have demonstrated uh, uh, proof of that they've continued to improve over time when you look at the time to hire down over 50% just in the past several years. I think there is a long-term tailwind towards hiring online versus uh, versus offline. But, but my question marks are is, you know, we have this big, this big kind of lumpy stock-based comp expense that came in uh, uh, this quarter, trying to suss through, you know, uh, the core business, what's going on here versus versus the kind of uh, uh, murkiness that we get from stock-based comp, and then also, what does the normalized growth rate look for, like for this company? So when we're, when we're in a normalized hiring environment where where you know there's not massive uh, 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 gaps between demand for hiring and, and the and the folks out in the market, what do, what do those normalized numbers look like? And that's that's one of those things we'll have to wait a few quarters uh, to find out. 
Austin, I think that that'll be it for us here uh, on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me as always. Can't wait to have you back on again soon. A lot of fun. Thanks so much, Nick. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Asset Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.